Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the second part of my conversation with author Jeffrey Block regarding his recent book, A Fine Romance, Adapting Broadway to Hollywood in the Studio System Era. The romance that Jeffrey is referring to in his title is the sometimes passionate but often rocky love affair between Broadway musicals and the film studios that have adapted them into movie musicals. In this episode, we discuss the 1940s stage and 1943 film versions of Cabin in the Sky, the first major musical to be adapted from an all-black stage show, as well as the 1955 Broadway and 1957 Hollywood versions of Cole Porter's Silk Stockings, a movie that Jeffrey and I are both advocates for. And along the way, we delve into a number of topics, including the pros and cons of the quite frequent use of voice dubbing in film musicals, and we also look at the numerous and often ridiculous changes that were made in these Broadway musicals in order to satisfy the censors who were charged with enforcing the Hollywood production code, and we also look at how some of the films got around those restrictions. If you missed the first episode in this series, you may want to catch up with that one before listening to this one. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our Patron Club members, including our producer-level patrons Paula and Steve Reynolds. If you'd like to help support the creation of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Here we go. So let's jump into Cabin in the Sky. We can come back to On the Town and Call Me Madam. Cabin in the Sky, I thought that was a really fascinating section of your book because that's a show of stage show we have almost no visibility to today. How close does this film adaptation bring us to that original? Not close enough, but (laughs) I do think they're both, from what I've been able to reconstruct of Cabin in the Sky, I have the libretto. You know, I've got a hold of the libretto and I gradually got to know most of the songs. But what I don't know, the dance, the dancing was a really big deal. It was choreographed by Balanchine and Catherine Dunham, and they were collaborators. And Catherine Dunham had a lot to do with it, from what Absolutely. I can glean. She was a major figure 
Balanchine and Dunham wanted to have more, well, I'll use the word authentic, but more like dancing that had stronger ethnic origins, you know, a lot in the Caribbean. And she was an anthropologist, so she had researched all these, both Black dancing and the Black diaspora dancing. Right. And the directors, producers, wanted them all to tap dance, basically. That they won. Dunham and Balanchine won. Yeah, Balanchine Dunham won. Yeah, I'm sorry. So in the original stage production, there was not tap dancing. It was much more rooted yeah, in, the, in the ballet. And that's why I chose a lot of photos of what, yeah. what it looked like. So that we have that. And Dunham is one of the mothers of modern dance and Absolutely. of ethnic dance. She's bringing that to the table. And she was the female star. So she's not only the choreographer or yeah. largely the choreographer, she's also plays the role of Georgia Brown. Who was then played by Lena Horne, who was not a dancer. In fact, she hurt her ankle and she's not even a stander. You know, <laughs> in one of her big songs, she uh, sits. But you can see Catherine Dunham dance on YouTube videos. Really and good. her company in the movie of Stormy Weather, aren't they? Stormy Weather, exactly. Which yeah. is around the same time of Cabin in the Sky. Right. Some of the good things about the film also is that it's an amazing collection of black talent, absolutely amazing, with Ethel Waters and well, even people like the original Sport in Life. You get to see him John sing Bubbles, the film yeah. as, and dance. It's just amazing. Duke Ellington's in there. It's just right. absolutely staggering. And the soundtrack, there is a soundtrack, a really complete soundtrack of Cabin in the Sky. Manelli picked a really great songwriter to do the interpolations. Like, for example, Happiness is a Thing Called Joe. That was by Harold Arlen. He also wrote, this is controversial and I talk about it because it's an issue. He wrote like a pseudo-spiritual also. At least three of the songs are by Harold Arlen and they're all really good songs. And now if you were to stage, it's something like what would happen when you restage Sound of Music or when you do Cabaret, you do songs from the film. In fact, when Encores did in the sky. They did happiness is a thing called Joe, I think. Because um, it's so identified now with that story, exactly. with that property, you have to put the addition into it. Yeah. And so there were some other interpolations. Life's full of consequences. That's another one. Not as well known. So the film also has Louis Armstrong's in it. He has a lot of lines too. He's more of an actor than a singer era. They cut most of his trumpet playing. He's the trumpeter in the heaven, you know. Gabriel. Gabriel. I mean, so the collection of talent is absolutely amazing. But they did cut a lot of Vernon Duke was the original composer. They cut a lot. So it's a mixed bag, but it's one of those examples that in its own right, see Cabin in the Sky. You get to see Ethel Waters, who was originally on the stage. She gets the songs Taking a Chance on Love, which is Vernon Duke. Yes. It's one of the great performances, really, in film. <laughs> I'm hearing trumpets blow again, all aglow again, taking a chance on love. Here I slide again, about to take that ride again, starry-eyed again, taking a chance on love. I thought the cards were a frame-up, would try but now I'm taking the game up and the ace of hearts is high things are mending now I see a rainbow blending now we'll have our happy ending now taking a chance 
And the story, the book is fairly close to the stage original. Yes. In every example, I go through all the change. You know, I'm not going to do that now, but I go through every change and I have a chart of all the musical changes and similarities. And then the differences become interesting in their own right. Like in the film, because films still want realism. So it's like imagined as a dream. So that's okay to be a dream. The story has a fantasy element, and they try to find a way to justify the fantasy by making it a dream. Exactly. It's a loss, but a gain, too. I mean, it's Minnelli's first major musical, too, Vincent Minnelli. Who had been a Broadway figure prior to that. And he'd worked with Ethel Waters. and So it's a sleeper, in a way, but it really belongs in this book to me. Then I also have Flower Drum Song, which is, I have in parentheses, mostly all Asian. That's because one of the major characters is actually African-American. Juanita Hall, right? Right, who played both Asian characters and Black characters. Right, an amazing performer, I think sort of unsung in a way, underappreciated, even though we know her so well in certain contexts. She was in both the stage and the film versions. A flower drum song. Flower drum song, yeah, yeah. And South Pacific. Exactly. I think they dubbed her in South Pacific, though. Yeah, I think she she doesn't actually sing in the film. I think they used the woman who did it in London at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is odd. It was quite a bit later, so I think her voice was not in the same shape it was when she recorded the cast album. The dubbing issues are sort of taken for granted, but they are an issue. Even some of the best adaptations, at least one or more major characters are dubbed. Which a lot of purists will take great exception to. Exactly, exactly. It's less cool now to do it. Yeah, but we also then have often singing that's not very good. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Which is okay in certain contexts. It's like, you know, it all depends what it is, but... You know, some of them were singers like Vera Ellen, who's mainly a dancer. She actually sang in a Broadway musical. She played the second female lead in the revival of Connecticut Yankee, and it's on recording. And you could see why they didn't want her to sing. I mean, it's sort of thin and tinny. Whereas Donald McConnor was like a double three, he could do both, you know. Right. When Astaire and Kelly, they all did their own singing. Yeah. But Sid Charisse, obviously, one of the people you talk about a lot in this because she's in two of the movies you talk about, never sings a note that I'm aware of. On I know that she recorded some of the songs that they didn't use. That happens a lot, like with Natalie Wood and other yeah, people. Yeah. But the dubbing is, you know, that's that's an issue. Oklahoma, they're not dubbed. And there's a funny story. Ted Chapin, he was the president of Roger Hammerstein. He did the audio commentary of Oklahoma. And they got to the Poor Judd is Dead song. He was doing it with somebody else. I can't remember. You know, there were two of them. And they were d- debating who did the singing for that. For Rod Steiger's part as Judd, because of course his big song is cut, but he does sing a little bit in that song. And it's actually Rod Steiger. And he's good. And another one who surprised me as being good is George Sanders. You know, the critic in All About Eve, he's a very good singer and he sings the male lead in Call Me Madam. He's great. Another thing just to strike is I'm doing a project now about Topsy-Turvy, the biopic Topsy-Turvy, and everybody in that film is doing their own singing. Everybody. All those British stars. And hardly any of them were singers. A lot of actors can really sing if you coach them right. Give them the right support and the right backup. Yeah, Yeah. it's really impressive to me. I wrote about a number of these adaptations in an earlier book called Enchanted Evenings, and I only duplicated Showboat and West Side Story, and I added to that. I didn't want to duplicate what I 
I was doing. But one of the musicals I did was Guys and Dolls, where the people sing. Marlon Brando, it may not be great, but he sings. Yeah, although there are stories that they sort of patch that together note by note in the studio. But <laughs> well, the, the okay. end result it still works pretty well. Well, another example is Elizabeth Taylor in Little Night Music. Okay, it's spliced a lot, but she did <laughs> sing every note, for goodness sake. It's you all know. her, exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. so I would yeah. give her some points for that. And but, there's no auto-tune back then, so they have right. to do it themselves. Yeah. Right, right, right. Anyway, so, okay. Let's talk a little bit about the production code, because that's sort of a minor oh, character yeah. I, in I, your I, book. First of all, what is it, and how is it affecting these movies? The production code was a solution to a problem in that trying to appeal to various groups that thought that the films were getting a little bit too explicit, that the moral values were getting corrupted, and so on and so forth. So they developed a code, which is known as the production code. So it's self-censorship, basically. Yeah, censorship. So like you could commit murder in a film, but you're going to get it. You're not going you to make it be a picture. You, you know? can't get away and, with it. And interracial relationships were forbidden. And every Tennessee Williams adaptation was affected by this, the endings are all changed. Nobody's going to get castrated, you know, or raped even, I mean, in, in Streetcar. So the films before 1934 were by and large not censored or not censored very much. After 1934, they were censored a lot. Those are the movies we call pre-code, where there's a lot of racy material that happens in them, and they're sort of celebrated for that because then yeah. the shift happens so much. Right. And that affects almost all these Broadway musicals because Broadway was not censored and Broadway was not for family audiences. Because the general rule is that you could do more and show more on Broadway than you could in a film. Because a film had to play everywhere. A film had to play in Peoria, I guess, is the old exactly, expression. Exactly. And these people that were objecting to it were sort of equivalent of the religious right, yeah, in a way, right. yes. is yeah. very strong at this period. And the movie studios are terrified that the government will censor them, so they That's censor right. themselves. Right. In a way, we might see this as the good old days, because I've been studying this a long time, and at the Motion Picture Academy in Beverly Hills, you can get a hold of all these production files. So you were able to look at all these movies and see what the production code objected to, and what actually got into the movie, and what didn't get into the movie. The, That's the fascinating. The exchange between the studio and the head of the production code, who by then was a guy named Joseph Breen. One of the interesting things, I mean, a friend of mine said, Did Breen really read all these things? Yes. He spent his whole day reading scripts and commenting. You know, he had some assistance, but he did a lot of the grunt work and he did it for like, you know, 20 years. So yeah. he was like the iron hand. He loved film. I mean, I don't want to defend the guy that, <laughs> that, I mean, by present day standards, you can defend him because, you know, he wanted really good films. He worked with you. He worked with Tennessee Williams to come up with something that Tennessee Williams would agree to and still fit the code. So, And then gradually the code got challenged and successfully. And then it ended in the 60s with the rating system. So talk about, in terms of these movies you deal with in your book, what are some of the most egregious changes that Breen made them do to the movies? Right. There's nothing like really huge. It's a bunch of little things. Not huge like the Tennessee Williams. It's Not major plot points or major right. things that the whole story yeah. hinges on. I was surprised by, even after they vetoed something, even after they said, you know, don't do this, 
they did it anyway, and the film got released. I mean, I have dozens of examples like that. Or they overlook things or forgot about things. And they're also, like, really picky on how short the skirts are and how much cleavage. And every movie, you could see how that was altered. They were really big on those kinds of things. So, And they would make them go back and reshoot those sections of the movie? Most of that stuff happened before the movie was made. Just said, be careful, the skirts aren't too short. Yeah, that's right. So there's some fudging going on because I don't think they check the film every time until later. That's one of the things that happened to Love Me Tonight. When it was going to be re-released, they looked at it and then they actually really snipped parts of the film, you know. Because that was a pre-code film. Yeah, yeah. pre-code film. With Cole Porter's interesting, like, I did Kiss Me Kate earlier, but I was struck by how often they changed a lot of his lyrics. In that day, they wouldn't even heard on the radio a lot of right. his lyrics. Right. But anyway, so a couple of examples. On the Town has some cool ones. There's a song called I Can Cook Too. Most of Bernstein's songs were cut, but it's interesting. There's strong evidence that Bernstein actually wrote the lyrics to that song, too. But the point is, I didn't see them asking for permission for that song. <laughs> and, you know, they just knew that song's not going to fly. Whereas Come Up to My Place, that was okay. I mean, that's pretty suggestive, but what are we going to do there? But there's a line in I Can Cook Too, where when Chip learns that Hildy, the taxi driver, can cook also, he asked her what her specialty is, but she says, me. <laughs> so they're not going to do that. So that's a really funny song that you won't see in the movie. Even if they had wanted to keep it, because it's actually a very accessible Bernstein song. It doesn't yes. fall into that mode yeah. that they were objecting to, exactly. but it's too dirty. But I noticed they didn't ask. There's another song called Prehistoric Man. Now, that's yeah. not by Bernstein. That's one of the many songs written by other people. And it's really not that great. I mean, but it's still a good number for um, Anne Miller. It's a great number. She's an archaeologist that she works at the Natural History Museum. And there's a statue of an early prehistoric man. And then when she meets this sailor, he looks exactly the same. So she sings a song. She says, lots of guys are hot for me. Well, they ask her to take the word hot out. Okay, so that's an example. The word libido is used several times in the original song, Prehistoric Man, but you won't find it in the film. They edited that out during the process. Right. Here's the funny one for me. In that same song, she says they didn't like the word tom-toms. So you get that word out of there. In the final version, she says, I really like tom-toms. <laughs> and I find that really funny because they tell her, don't use the word tom-toms. There's one more. She talks about she loves bear skin. And of course, you know, if you're reading it, you know, it's B-A-R. Yeah. But if you yeah. hear it, it's, you know, B-A-R-E. And they kept that. In um, Silk Stockings, there was a song called Stereophonic Sound, which was a satire of, we're going to get to this point about why the studio system crashed. And one of the reasons was because of television, you know, the, the rise of television and the competitive threat of television. And so movies said, what do we have in movies that you don't have in television? Technicolor and, and stereo. It was a way to fight back to make the movies an event that you went right. to. So you couldn't see this on your little tiny television screen. Exactly. And there was a reference in Stereophonic Sound is that you could see Marilyn Monroe's derriere, like really large. That yeah. reference was in the Broadway version. Yes. So they had to change that to mouth. Basically, it's a reference that her rear end is going to be gigantic. Yeah, in, gigantic in, on the screen. In, in VistaVision or whatever. So this is one of my favorite ones. Along the lines of what I was just saying about On the Town is a, a song that they were worried about was All of You. Because the song All of You, Fred Astaire sings to Nanachka, and he means all of you. 
Well, he sings the east, west, north, and the south Every of you. Every direction of you, I want. <laughs> and so they said, wait a minute here. Okay, we're going to let this go. But when you do the song, make sure you don't seem like it's suggestive. And I write a sentence that says, anyone watching the film today will notice that both Astaire and MGM disregarded this request. I remember even seeing that movie as a kid and thinking when Fred Astaire sort of glances down when he yeah. says, and the south of you, it's like there's no denying what he's talking about. It's really amazing. They were able to pull some things over on the, the good old production code. I love the looks of you, the lure of you. I'd love to make a tour of you. The arms, the eyes, the mouth of you. The east, west, north, and the south of you. I'd love to gain complete control of you and handle even the heart and soul of you so love at least a small percent of me do for I love all of you those are to me those were some interesting and one of the darker aspects of the production code is it actually reinforces racial prejudice in many ways. Yeah. They use this as a way to say, yeah. you can't do this in a movie because people will be upset about it. Exactly. That's exactly. why so many of the, like, Lena Horne's numbers in movies end up being just standalone performances so they could take them out so people in the South, right. wouldn't, in be, the South. wouldn't have to look at a Black woman being fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's the way it was. That's why Cabin in the Sky was such an unusual Kind of to do a film like that was a bold move in its day. One interesting thing in Cat and the Fiddle is that the two songwriters are living together in the same bedroom. And not only that, they wake up to, I mean, well, you don't see them come out of bed together, but he's But they're having breakfast together, right? And they're, they're in their night clothes. The yeah. They suggested to remove that and they didn't remove it and they kept it. Most of the time they were able to agree. Sometimes like Hammerstein fought forever, like the lyric, too damn bad in the song, Bloody Mary's the girl I love. He said, you got to have that. They would let you argue, particularly if you were famous and they kept things that other films might have excluded. So it's a really interesting topic, I think. You know, I, I tend to see like the glasses half full in a way because I, I see all these great films that were made and that they were able to work within the system. There are things that, you know, I really don't like about it, but... Well, there are things like when you watch the movie A Carousel and he has to say, and I'll try, I'll try, I'll try at the end of the soliloquy instead of I'll try, by God, I'll try. Oh, yeah, and you just right. go, that's just pathetic. Oh, yeah. And in South Pacific, on stage, everyone knows that Liot slept with Cable, but in the film version, they went back and forth. They wanted to make it so that that didn't actually happen, because that's a miscegenation. And of course, Cable dies, so that's one reason why that was okay. If he didn't die, they might not have allowed the relationship at all. Don't go away. Jeffrey Block and I will be back with more Broadway Nation right after this quick break.
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon, with no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Today to get the public to attend a picture show It's not enough to advertise a famous star they know If you want to get the crowds to come around You gotta have glorious technicolor Breathtaking cinemascope and stereophonic sound If folks today could witness Valentino in the chic They never would appreciate this lover boy's technique If you want to hear applauding hands resound You gotta have glorious technicolor Breathtaking cinemascope and stereophonic sound I was happy to discover that you and I are both advocates for the film version of Silk Stockings. That wasn't very fashionable for a while, but we seem to be gaining some ground in terms of that. First of all, Silk Stockings is historically really important because it is the first really major adaptation of a non-musical film. Now you go, really? Every non-musical film you've ever seen is now a stage production. So you're talking about the Broadway musical. I'm going back to the Broadway. The Broadway musical is one of the first or the first? Not the first, but the first really significant one. Where um, they took a non-musical movie and turned it into a Broadway show. Right. King and I is, uh, a lot of people think that was based on the film version more than the novel, but this is really the first important acknowledged adaptation based on a non-musical film. And they chose, even then, a classic film, Nanachka Lubitsch, a great director starring Greta Garbo. And it was a hit on Broadway. And why do you think that 
Broadway production, which was a big Cole Porter hit, yeah. follow up to Kiss Me Kate in that sort of second or third period of life that he had on Broadway, where he really had this incredible, unlikely resurgence. Why is the stage version so neglected and so not well known? I think the simple answer is two words, the film. Mm -hmm. I think there are some times where, like with West Side Story, the film is a classic and you're still going to see it on stage because that's also a classic. We're still going to see Showboat. You're still going to see Oklahoma. But there are some films that overwhelm the stage production to such an extent that you're just not going to see it. And I think that Flower Drum Song's in that category also, but no more so than Silk Stockings. So that's the short answer. But it is a really good stage musical. Excellent on its own terms. But the film has overshadowed it. One of the best known critics of the day, Robin Wood, made a striking statement 1975, 20 years later, striking statement that he thought that, first of all, it was sacrilegious to think that a film adaptation would be as good as the stage. But more and more people are starting to think that, including Ariana DeBose, who famously in a radio program, she first said, what's your favorite musical? Her first answer was Singing in the Rain. And then at the end of the interview, you know, she said, that's sort of like the stock answer. You're supposed to say Singing in the Rain. But really, my favorite film musical is Silk Stockings. And Robin Wood actually went as far with the second sacrilege. He actually thinks it's better than Lubitsch film. All right, so we're now we're getting into, you know, a film critic to say that a film is, you know, this classic film. Anyway, it's gained in stature, definitely. But it got good reviews in its time, too, also. And what's so outrageous about that is that you have a film critic saying that a musical adaptation of a Broadway musical is superior to the original, highly acclaimed, non-musical movie version. You'd expect a Mamoulian scholar to think so, but... Anyway, so I thought that's interesting. We've mentioned earlier in the interview that the biggest single thing he did was to convert an agent into Fred Astaire, put it that way. He plays somebody who can sing and dance. And then, of course, Sid Cerise. So what he did is he took the title song, which was sung by the male lead, and made it into a dance, an instrumental dance for Sid Cerise. Which is very revealing of her character. I mean, it's a big transition for her, for that character in that movie. Right. Quite emotionally, in a way, or movingly. It's fascinating Mm -hmm. how that moment, which is not in the Broadway show, suddenly opens her up, opens that character up. Exactly. And a lot of film scholars, musical film scholars, think it's one of the great moments in film. You know, it really is a touching, amazing thing. And there's a dramatic backbone to it. She's hidden the silk stockings, which is the symbol of Western decadence. Right. And she puts them on and dances. And it's the sign that she's ready to meet Western values, you know, halfway, more than halfway, and, you know, end up with Fittest there, you know. To lead her to this love relationship that she's going to end up with. Right, right, right.
So that's an example of that movie being not faithful to the original, but that movie goes back and forth. It's very faithful in some ways. It makes a lot of changes in other ways, but those are changes that certainly you see actually improve on the original. Right. And he added, Faded to Me Made It, there's another song, but I can't remember what it is. There's another added song. Oh, it's the Ritz Roll and Rock. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the shortest time span. There's one other adaptation that matches it in a short time span. Between the time it's on Broadway and the time it's made into a movie? Yeah, but in those two years, rock and roll had made headway. So he got together with Fred Astaire and they agreed to write a song. It's actually in rock and roll. It has the chord progressions of rock and roll. All the Ritz roll and rock. The rock and roll is dead and gone. Since the smart set took it on Because they find it much too tame They jazzed it up and changed its name And all they do around the clock Is the Ritz rolling rock You see big bucks tugged out in tails Wing dinging with expensive quails While dowagers and diplomats Behave like Barry Alley cats And all they do around the clock is the Ritz Rolling Rock. These fancy fox and fillies throw swell affairs. They make those hick hip billies look like squares. It's been at least a year, they say, since any other did the hay. And all they do around the clock is the Ritz Roll and Rock. And that's Fred Astaire's last major. He danced a little bit in Finian's Rainbow 10 years later, but it's his last starring role in a film. He's wearing a top hat, white tie and tails, which he hadn't been wearing recently. At the very last gesture, do you remember what that is? Yeah, well, uh, I do indeed, I remember <laughs> it. And it's so fascinating that it ties into rock and roll sort of emerging on the scene. You know, in yeah. hindsight, you can look back at all the resonance of that. The hat falls off his head or he drops the hat and then he smashes it with his foot, right? A hand, I think. He's on the floor. By, uh, oh, that's right. He's down on the floor by that point. And yeah. actually there's been a fair amount of debate about if that's on purpose or not. I'm one of the people who think it definitely was. I, I think they must have rehearsed it, but some people are claiming it was spontaneous. My interpretation is that while they were rehearsing it, or maybe during one of the takes, he dropped the hat or it fell, and that inspired the idea to then go back and shoot it and make that happen. Right. I yeah. think it was ad-libbed, but then it was incorporated into the movie. That moment that we're seeing is not an ad-libbed moment, I don't think. One interesting thing in terms of like working as a scholar, Mamoulian is like a major figure in both film and musical theater. He left an enormous collection. And when I first did Enchanted Evenings, the collection wasn't available. Once it became available, it actually took a number of years to get it going. And I've looked at it for a couple of different things. I talk about this in the book, that before he made the film, Mamoulian spent several months writing these extensive memorandum. They're not published, but they're all there in the collection. And I quote them. He went over every single little detail about just everything, the, every little sound, like they make the, the typing sound really loud. I thought those were fascinating. I really enjoyed yeah. reading those yeah. sections, and especially that typewriter thing you were talking about, where he wants the typewriter to sound like communism, basically, at the beginning, and then it's a much softer sound later after and, she transforms. And, and a lot of people think that's her best dramatic 
quick role. I mean, she was a good actress, but she wasn't primarily known as an actress. And she's really quite fantastic, especially when you're comparing her to Garbo. And yeah. it holds up. You don't feel like, oh, this is somebody who can't possibly yeah, pull right. this off. So I also go into the differences with Nanachkin. I'll just say one. Uh, one of the most famous things in the Lubitsch film, which is from 1939, and there was a lot of media hype, that this was the film that Garbo laughs. Right. She's so serious, and nothing can get her to laugh until the man who's interested in her trips and falls like a clown. And then she laughs hysterically, you know? So they just didn't even try to do that. And in the film, it's 1939, where women wore hats, and it was the hat that she puts on to show that she's accepted the decadence of Western civilization and that's replaced by the silk stockings in the movie. And also in the musical, presumably, because the musical was called Silk Stockings. And sung by a man. Yeah. So see Silk Stockings if you can. It's easy to get. But watch Nanachka too. It's really a wonderful film. How does it fit with your commandments? Oh, I think it fits pretty well. Talent instead of fame. Well, I think that was both talent and fame. You know, They I mean, were big, giant stars. Yeah. So, yeah, but you know, who had talent? It has the basic narrative structure, most of the score. In fact, it cut two songs, I think, one or two, and added two. Their interpolations are by Porter, so it fits there. And then my commandment was, if you're going to make a singing character, a dancing one, uh, make it dramatically credible and enhance the narrative and the music. Music. I think it fits very well. Now you all remember Lassie, that beloved canine star. To see her wag her tail, the crowds would come from near and far. But at present, she'd be just another hound. Unless she had glorious technicolor. Breathtaking cinema sculpt and stereophonic sound. Please be sure to join Jeffrey and I on the next episode of Broadway Nation when we return with more conversation regarding his fascinating new book, A Fine Romance, Adapting Broadway to Hollywood in the Studio System Era. I lately did a picture at the bottom of the sea. I wrestled with an octopus and licked an anchovy. But the public wouldn't care if she had drowned. Unless she had glorious technicolor, breathtaking cinemascope, and stereophonic sound. If Ava Gardner played Godiva riding on a mare, the people wouldn't pay a cent, and they wouldn't even care unless she had glorious technicolor or cinecolor or warnicolor or metricolor or eastman color or quarter and any color and stereophonic sound and stereophonic sound. Dancing was so intimate and sleek. A fella hugged his partner as they cuddled cheek to cheek. Now, now he doesn't, doesn't even know if she's around. Because they're in glorious technicolor, breathtaking cinemascope and stereophonic sound. It's not enough today to see a dancer at his ease. He's got to throw his back out and come sliding on his knees. He's got to have glorious Russian ballet or modern ballet or English ballet or Chinese ballet or Hindu ballet or ballet ballet or any ballet and stereophonic song and stereophonic song. 
Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.super.com. R-C-A-S-T.tech, or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Stereophonic sound and stereophonic as an extra tonic stereo Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.